Hi, I'm Grant Armstrong, and I get to serve as directing pastor here at St. John's United Methodist Church in Edwardsville, Illinois. We exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Our desire is to be a beacon of faith and service, focusing our passions and gifts to reflect Christ's love to the world. You are invited to join us each week at 9 a.m. for a time of traditional worship or at 11 a.m. for contemporary worship. Thanks for joining us for this online version of the sermon. I'm going to be reading from Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him, so Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears, tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him the story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 to another, but neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave both of them canceling their debts. Who do you suppose left him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one who had canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust off from my feet, but she's washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me so much love, but a person who has forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our seven-year-old son, Theo, is in a Lego stage of life right now. You notice that any franchise worth its salt has a dozen or so different Lego sets available in construction. Lego has done a great job at building its own feature-length version of a commercial to advertise their brand through things like the Lego movie and the development of things like Ninjago. It's brilliant, and it probably won't ever stop being brilliant. Theo had a little Christmas money that was burning a hole in his pocket, and so we went over to the local big box store to spend about a half an hour browsing how to most strategically spend up to but no more than 16 whole U.S. dollars. Ultimately, he came out with a creator set designed so you can use the pieces in the box to build a bunch of different things. This one included a shark and a crab and fish and so on and so forth. The first design to try, the squid. It looked really cool. Theo got a great start on it before I offered to help. There were four tentacles that looked nearly identical. Go, in, go ahead and say identical tentacles five times fast. It's difficult. Don't, don't do it then. If I could help with that task, it would be fairly simple. And he permitted. So I started by looking at the design, and it's all done in pictures, not words, to make things easy even for me. And so three quarters of the way in, I discovered that I'd ran out of pieces. 
there were not enough Legos to complete the design as I had imagined it. And so maybe I thought, okay, perhaps the pieces were already used in the design and the, the Theo had already overused them or maybe that they didn't have enough and it was undersupplied. But as I started looking at it, I realized that because of the other job that I contribute to Lego construction, which is categorizing everything by shape and color, there were problems other than what I described, that it was not an overuse. The trouble was, it wasn't four identical tentacles. It was, in fact, two pairs of similar-looking tentacles, but not exactly the same. I was on autopilot and had failed to consult the instructions. And as I turned just one single page to be able to see the second pair of tentacles, I did the thing I dislike most about being corrected by an instruction manual. I had to undo what I had already done so I could start again correctly. It's embarrassing. And Theo didn't say anything, probably out of kindness, but I'm sure he knew in his head that he would have done it right the first time by following the instructions. That's why, over the course of this month, we're looking at some pretty simple but very important things. It's stuff that we know we're supposed to do, things that we know we're supposed to be about. Even folks who don't have a religious faith benefit from the understanding of these critical aspects of life. But these are also places in life where we can sometimes find ourselves stuck and find out that we might need to do what I like doing least, which is to halt progress because we've made a mistake. We have to undo what we've already done and perhaps take the chance to get a brand new start doing things the right way. The series title, How to You, sounds a little bit like a self-help series, but that's not really my style or a great use of our time, partly because I don't have my own act together enough to be able to presume to have any of this perfect enough to share. But what we'll do is to look at Scripture to hear from God's heart about these things so we can be encouraged, maybe get ourselves unstuck and find the strength through God to move forward with a good new start. And today we're looking at forgiveness. And that leads to our first lesson for this morning. Forgiveness failures result in bitter poison. Forgiveness failures result in a bitter poison. One of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, so Jesus went to the home and sat down. When a certain immoral woman from the city heard he was eating, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume, and she knelt be behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet. She wiped them off with her hair. And she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said, If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She is a sinner. Now, I don't think it's an accident that the fruits of these two people held in starkest contrast in this encounter with Jesus were pouring out two very different things. The woman at Jesus' feet was pouring out a sweet aroma, a pricey perfume that was probably once used to survive as a woman living in an exploitative culture, mingled in with her tears of regret that were giving away to tears of gratitude for the freedom being given to her by Jesus, one who had the position to restore her dignity that had been stolen from her over time. Hers was an aroma and outpouring of gratitude and of humility. The Pharisee poured out cynicism and harsh judgment, and as Jesus notes later, did nothing else, poured nothing else out in service of his honored guest. His words betrayed a, a bitterness towards this woman and to the one she was trying to show thanks to because she had a reputation of immorality. 
That's probably biblical shorthand for her being seen as a prostitute or an adulteress, which likely means she was a woman who was powerless and viewed as property in her time. She had probably been exploited as an object of desire as opposed to being seen as a person of dignity. And with each desperate act of survival on her part, her reputation became more corrupt in the eyes of the community. Of course Jesus knew that. Of course he knew. Even without the wisdom of a prophet, people could see who is cast out from the better places of society. He knew full well, but he didn't hold any animosity towards this woman. The Pharisee, the man we're about to learn, his name Simon, knows that nice people don't mingle with coarse people. Certainly not in any way that could be misconstrued as friendship or intimacy. After all, what, what will people think? He wouldn't say he hates her, but this Pharisee is deeply uncomfortable relating to this woman. He's throwing a special party for this super impressive rabbi that's gaining a lot of notoriety around the Galilee and Judean areas. And this lady shows up and messes up his really nice dinner. Unacceptable. And Simon needs everybody to understand that this isn't his doing and it's not his intention. Pharisees were religious experts. This Simon was probably a, a person of importance because of his influence and connection in the professionally religious world. And yet his heart is bitter towards a woman he knows only by reputation, probably. Why? Why the bitterness? And that leads to our second lesson. We're sometimes blind to our own debts and deficits. Sometimes blind to our own debts and deficits. Jesus answered Simon's thoughts. Simon, he said, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, he replied. Jesus told him a story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 silver pieces to one, 50 to the other. Neither of them could repay, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Jesus and prophets often used stories and parables to help people understand things by allegory and implication because those things were slightly less threatening than saying something like, Simon, you go around acting like your toes smell like roses, but you've been clearly walking through the pasture, buddy. Jesus wasn't looking to shame Simon. It was probably Simon's overdeveloped sense of shame that kept him from acknowledging the dignity of another imperfect human being to begin with. But Jesus did want to correct Simon and did so by telling a story of debt. This approach fits into a specific understanding of the balance of the world. First, in this understanding, the world doesn't owe us anything. The world owes us nothing. Second, the wrong we do and the love we fail to show puts us in a nasty deficit with God because our carelessness carries with it consequences. If we look at it from a wider perspective of justice, the totality of our wrongs and shortcomings would create for us a ledger that we are unable to repay to others and unable to offer restitution to God. And unless we discover a way to balance the weight substantially to our favor, we remain at best indebted and at worst condemned. You may not share this perspective. It's not the only understanding of the reality that sin has done to our experience of life. But there's one thing I know. If we if we deny any sense of indebtedness because our shame is afraid of admitting guilt, wrongdoing, or failure, we will have an awfully difficult time making allowance for the guilt, wrongdoing, and failure of others. And so we will preserve our illusions and facade while cursing and excluding others because we cannot bear the weight of our shame. 
This story Jesus tells was designed to help Simon recall that perhaps he hasn't required quite the level of restoration that this nameless woman has required, but it doesn't mean he's required none. There is a debt due for his life as well, and he would do well to remember that. The third lesson from this morning is forgiveness is an act and process of restorative mercy. Forgiveness is an act and process of restorative mercy. Jesus turned to the woman and said to Simon, Look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet. She washed them with her tears, wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven, so she has shown much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only a little love. Forgiveness is messy. It's not always like a light switch for people where an offender or the offended gets to flip a toggle and someone moves from abusive to docile or from hurt to healed. Forgiveness is a willful act, a decision that begins somewhere, however. And it begins when we decide that the poison of anger or hurt that we're carrying inside of ourselves no longer serves us. Or maybe that the person who has hurt us has shown sufficient remorse. Or maybe we understand that we are forgiven in the same manner that we forgive others. So we choose to move in that direction. If we're seeking forgiveness, maybe we're just weary from being cut off from the people that we're meant to love. Maybe we're all done with the lies that tell us it's absolutely unacceptable to admit wrong. Maybe we see that those we hurt deserve justice and perhaps our confession and the best possible restitution we can offer can be a part of that. I see forgiveness as an act of restorative mercy primarily because I've heard of a description a few times that maybe you've heard too. That justice is getting what we deserve and then mercy might be when we don't get what's coming to us. That it's a a consequence that's withheld. And the merciful act of forgiveness does not preclude justice, but it helps to remove hate and anger from the equation. Someone can be forgiven, forgiven of an offense by a victim, and yet still have a debt of a prison sentence from the prerogative of the law. There may still be a price to pay, but the price becomes restorative as opposed to punitive. Choosing to lay down our weapons that keep painful memories living rent-free in our heads means for us that we experience freedom. Choosing not to speak poorly of someone who has wronged us shows that we have a sense of what God has done for us. We're never obligated to subject somebody to ongoing abuse or victimization, never ever, but to allow the hope or even the possibility of allowing the dignity of communion, community for someone who has hurt us shows a hard-fought victory over trauma. These are battles first fought in our heads, in our hearts, but they change the outcomes of our words and our behaviors. Maybe it means we let the person know that they've hurt us, but we don't hold that hurt against them. It could just be something you know is not worth bringing up, and so you just let it go. Maybe that person won't ever be in your life in the same way anymore, and that's okay, but you've chosen not to hold on to an anger that's haunted your heart. Or maybe if you're seeking forgiveness and you have to ask what needs, what needs to be done to receive someone's forgiveness? And then we get to respond with hopeful patience if they provide for us an answer. 
Maybe it means that we forgive ourselves and release ourselves from regret. No matter what it is, what form this forgiveness takes, it leads to our next lesson. Jesus is the power and freedom to forgive. Jesus is the power and freedom to forgive. Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. And the men at the table asked among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Several years ago, I was counseling a couple that was just about to exchange vows and come before the wedding altar. There were some slight indiscretions that took place at a bachelorette party. It was nothing horrible, but it was goofy, childish stuff that didn't reflect the maturity required to enter into a lifelong commitment. And because of that, the couple came to me a little panicked. Were they ready for marriage if childish acts like this were still taking place at all? We talked about putting away childish things and how some of the indulgences of the night probably clouded otherwise good judgment, that maybe those activities just didn't need to happen anymore if they needed to happen ever. They agreed that those innocent enough things could result in significant enough damage that it wasn't worth the risk. Then we talked about what it takes to move ahead. It would take a determined refusal to weaponize that act for the future or to bring it up as ammunition to win later arguments. Our nature in so many cases calls us to win. But if you win a fight and lose a relationship, that may not be much of a win in the end. So how do we disarm our killer instinct? How do we love through the hurts to reconcile and restore to the fullest extent possible? I think the key is to remember what Jesus has done for us. While he was being ridiculed, During his execution on a cross, Jesus, in complete innocence, declared, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus' radical act of forgiveness through sacrifice precedes our change of heart. His offer of forgiveness is our prompt to accept it and the transformation that comes with it. And because we know how it is that Jesus has set us free, we get to extend that same gift to others. He tells us in Matthew chapter 6, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Forgiveness received and given is a form of freedom. And our gratitude for that forgiveness fuels our love. That's what we get to experience as we're called together at this table of communion. We get to know the presence of Christ right here with us, telling us that we are loved, that we are forgiven, that we are restored.